Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. Today we interview Carolyn McAteer, my dear friend, who is a 40-year breeder of Irish setters. Carolyn is a member of the Irish Setter Club of America. She's also on the AKC board. She's the AKC representative from the Irish Setters. She's also on the AKC Canine Health Foundation and AKC Pact. So this interview is packed with so much information, you're not going to want to miss it. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, it's Deborah Hamilton, and today I am so honored to have my longtime dear friend, Carolyn McAteer, as a guest on Why Do Pets Matter? She is a 40-year breeder of Irish setters, and she sits on the AKC Board of Directors on the AKC PAC. She's involved with that, and she's also involved with the Canine Health Foundation. So without further ado, Carolyn, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's fun to uh, go over 40 years of uh, life with red dogs. And actually, it's really more like 70 years because my parents have bred them since the 1940s. So Right. So you come almost in utero uh, being an Irish setter breeder because you were your mom was before you, Paula, who I had the honor to know and love. And she knew and loved me despite all my foibles. So I, I love that that you know, uh, relationship is going to probably come out in this podcast. So without further ado, the question we ask every guest, Carolyn, is why do pets matter to you? Well, pets matter to me, and particularly in this day and age, although certainly since I was born, because they are considered in current environments members of your family. So we are more than ever aware of what pets add to our lives and certainly over the last 18 months, we are, uh, they have kept us sane, by the way. You know, I talk to my dog. I think my dog is a little bit bored with me. So uh, they are an intrinsic part of your happiness. We worry almost as much about the dog as we do our children, if not more. And I do think the tide of turning to your pets are your family, which is, by the way, currently um, a slogan on car sales and dog food. So there you go. That's yes, Uber has made a lot of money with using the dogs as drivers of cars. They did. They did. And um, one of the dog food companies said, we feed them like family because they are family. Yeah. And they really and they really are. I have to say mine are 
definitely part of my family. So in your years with Irish setters, and I will totally tell the audience that I am also an Irish setter breeder. So we are what is considered preservationist breeders, uh, protectors of these kinds of animals that come pretty much uniformly. So tell me a little bit about your role with AKC and how preservationist um, breeders are really required to keep these dogs going forward. Well, uh, it, that's not really the role of AKC, although they certainly address it, but it is the role of the parent clubs that live inside AKC. So all of us are aware of the current trends towards uh, using the purpose of your dog. In our instance, I bred for confirmation for 30 years, but for the past 10 years, I've really focused on the fact that my dog should be built to do its job as well as to go around the group ring. So, so tell me a little bit more about that because I don't think my audience knows the difference between purpose-bred dogs and <coughs> dogs that are, that are not purpose-bred. I mean, there are dogs that uh, need to do a certain job. That's why they were created. That breed was created. So for Irish setters, they were steady to wing and shot. So tell us a little bit more about that. Well, when you breed for show, you breed to the standard and that standard is owned by the parent club. So you always want your dog to look like an Irish setter, but when you want to consider form and function, you often, uh, perhaps uh, I'm not as extreme in the angles of my dogs nowadays as I used to be years ago, because I want them to run a full day uh, in the field. I want to remember that uh, the neck of my dog is balanced for the length and height because you don't want it to crouch when it picks up a bird. So when you're considering what the job of the dog is versus how glorious it looks, and by the way, the field dog is glorious, uh, then it's just making sure you make the right concessions to not go off standard, but to get what you want. So tell me a little bit more about parent clubs, because you and I both know that the parent clubs really help members stay on top of health, stay on top of everything that's coming down in legislation. So tell us a little bit more, because I don't know that everyone who has a purebred dog or even a mixed breed dog knows that they can check the parent club of that dog's lineage. So Irish setters, poodles, if you have a Labradoodle, you get to check two clubs because you check the Labrador club and you check the poodle club. And you still don't know what you get. Yeah. So uh, the, the truth of the matter is that the parent club owns the standard. It's in our instance has our, the parent club is over 150 years old. So, but the difference is that they, are, they also guide you as changes come. So for the endless number of years that the Irish Center Club of America has existed as the parent club, their role changes and grows as life with dogs changes and grows. I can, uh, I mean, they are great mentors to people coming in. The, the breeders who are in the breeder uh, section of our uh, place on uh, both the parent club listing and in our magazine that comes monthly uh, and in our membership. Those are people who want to guide you to get the dog that is correct to make for you. And Iris setters are definitely not correct for everybody. 
but they are the guiders and they hold uh, very tightly to standard and to rules and to the advancement of health. Uh, without a doubt, uh, we are one of the finest breeds to advance the health of our dogs. We recently won the uh, Canine Health Foundation Award. We focus naturally on uh, situations that happen to our dogs. Uh, but way back in the day of PRA, the eyes, we were one of the breeds that definitively uh, financed and found the solution to PRA as much as it can be controlled. And uh, it is suggested that people retest three generations down to make sure everybody is still clear. But it's like having, um, there's 1,200 of us about as members of this, and it's like having 1,200 mothers. I mean, somebody is overlooking, watching over, always taking care of. Uh, the board is a mix of um, breeders from the four regions we consider across the United States. For us, the U.S. is divided into four segments. Uh, and it's a place for mentoring, guidance, for sharing stories, both good and bad, because we are pretty upfront when something goes wrong in our breed. Transparency is really key because not only do Transparency you is key. need to know, but puppy owners um, who may not be doing things in the breed ring, but maybe doing things in agility or in the field um, need to know, or even if they're just sleeping on the couch being a companion, they need to know what they are getting, that package. And I think that's sometimes the biggest difference between adopting a dog from a shelter or rescue and buying from a breeder who is there to mentor you is that you know what this package you're picking up at eight or 10 or 12 weeks of age is going to look like or should look like um, when it gets right. home to you. Well, I believe uh, regarding shelter that every dog deserves a great home. Absolutely. But the one thing that we highlight is that A, we're around for you all the time if there's an issue. Breeders certainly know how to address situations with their owners. Our contracts, nearly everyone says, if you find there's a situation, we are your first call. Yes, and so that, that, that first call thing. is sometimes um, puppy owners who I've interviewed uh, say sometimes that's a difficult call to make because they feel judged. And so we are working as a breed, and I know many of the breed clubs are working to have breeders uh, be a little more open to conversation with you know, neophytes, people who are just getting our breed. Right. Uh, I think we do a good job in our breed. I think most breeds do because breeders don't want to get that call. Uh, and, uh, you know, I send postcards at regular intervals when a, a pup has been taken saying, OK, call me if you're seeing this. OK, do you need guidance about that? If you're reaching out to them, uh, they shouldn't feel uh, pressured in any way. I know. I know everybody has their own way of dealing with things. But um, uh, I support shelters, uh, but the truth of the matter is purebred dogs come with an expected health and anticipated temperament. That is something you can't guarantee when you take a shelter dog, but we want that shelter dog to have a home too. So. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? It really is important that I've been working with shelters and rescues to also be mentors because they are actually giving a dog to someone and they've evaluated it and they really need to be there like the breeders are. It's a little more difficult because it's not as organized a, a situation, but to be there for those adopters so that they can at least have someone who 
knows it, even if they affiliate with an animal behaviorist or a trainer, so that people who take the um, dogs home from a shelter or a rescue actually have a successful trajectory like ones that would get it from um, a reputable AKC breeder. Exactly. So there's really, it's, it's simply a matter of what you're looking for in that dog and what you're looking for in that relationship. So tell me a little bit more about the Canine Health Foundation, because I know that you are a big part of that group, as well as the AKC PAC, which helps to do other wonderful things we'll talk about in a minute. But tell my group who listen here about the Canine Health Foundation, because not only does it help Irish setters, but it helps shelter dogs who are part Irish setter or all Irish setter, because it helps dogs moving forward. It's it's always about getting information and sharing it. Well, um, Canine Health Foundation is the largest foundation to fund research in animals. In our sense, it's uh, dogs. But we refer to it as One Health because, in essence, what we discover uh, when we're covering issues in all breeds and sometimes parent clubs uh, forward ideas for what needs to be uh, sought after. Sometimes uh, the research is done at the request of the Canine Health Foundation. And we certainly partner with some amazing health institutions along the way but it is uh, really focused on dogs and the one health of every breed. And breeds have an opportunity to fund what is of interest to them. I mean, the reason that the Irish Center Club of America has a foundation is primarily to fund the research of health issues that affect our dogs. Almost all breeds have that same feeling. If they have a parent club, then the parent club itself will raise funds. If they have a foundation, then the foundation raises the funds. But it has been um, an awesome experience for me. I've been on that board for about four years now, and uh, I am just mesmerized at what can be accomplished and the amount of devotion that is made by clubs for health. And as I said, the Irish sitters have repeatedly been at the top of their game. And last year were awarded a really snazzy award for being so good with our research. So uh, and our research dollars, because we really research dollars. a number of um fantastic research veterinarians and other professionals uh, to do the work that we need done to help Irish setters thrive. And by virtue of Irish setters thrive, other dogs thrive if they're succumbing to the same kind of issue. So it's just a a win-win for everybody. Well, it's interesting because apart from the foundation, the base parent club uh, in Irish Setters also has a health committee uh, currently headed and has been headed for the past several years by Anne-Marie Kubas. Uh, great uh, experience in veterinary medicine, and she really cracks the whip if we're not going where we're supposed to be going. So she um, sends forward to us on a regular basis. To They're all published in our big magazine. What is of interest to our breed? And there's a poll of what's of interest to our breed. So we uh, really get to have some control over what we consider the most important and then we raise funds for it and our national has uh, an event that is solely that week dedicated to raising funds for the foundation with an auction and a great fun top 20 competition Uh, and we're unique in that we are organized about it but we're not unique 
um, in that I bet all breeds really focus on trying to make sure the health of their animal progresses. And I want to speak a little bit about uh, longevity. My longevity, which, you know, we won't discuss age, but my longevity means uh, that I have watched things transform. Uh, years ago, when we were going to do a breeding, uh, the testing beforehand was like brucellosis. Uh, we didn't have uh, progesterones. We let the stud dog decide when the bitch was ready. We didn't have advanced care for the puppies. Uh, if there was an issue with the puppy, you usually lost it. Health has progressed right along the same lines that human health has. And a part of that is, of course, the animal means just as much as uh, the family member. I don't mean that rudely, but they do mean as much as the family member. So we have so many options to us that in the 1960s, when I started my true activity, uh, I remember my mother preparing for a breeding and she had the bitch's pedigree in the center of the table and she had three pedigrees surrounding it. And every day she cycled one to the top of the pile and, and was focusing on what the male would have to add to the look of the dog. We didn't know enough about health to make health decisions. Now the health decision is right up there at the top and decisions are made based on that. It's very, very uh, fascinating for somebody who grew up uh, knowing the pedigree on the dining room table and the three dogs surrounding it. So, you know, it's so great that you're bringing that up because in the uh, MAP community call, we have members there who are purebred dog breeders of uh, and owners of Catans and of Wheatons. And one of our Wheatons just passed away from a protein issue that only happens to Wheatons. Mm-hmm. And you know, their foundation and their breed is also putting tons of money in because they do have a test for one protein dysfunction, but not for the other protein dysfunction, which is what this um, colleague in the MAP program, um, her dog died of. So you're right. This is across, this isn't just Irish setters. Irish setters tend to overachieve as they always do because they're those kind of dogs. Uh, However, we really have this opened up in every breed. So if you're buying from any breeder, you want to know, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you would say, well, you know, the mother looks great. The father looks great. And everything's copacetic. I, I still have people who say, well, I want to see the mother and the father. And and I know you, Carolyn, and I um, say, well, you want to really see if the mother and father have had those genetic tests that are required for a, a certain generations. So my dogs are, are genetically tested for four generations now because that's what I do and they're x-rayed and they're, you know, we know if they have hip issues, we know it doesn't mean that you can guarantee that the dog is going to be a hundred percent, but you've done everything. And I think that's what breeders can do right now. They can do everything to make sure instead of just having three pedigrees on the dining room table, they have three pedigrees and all the information to make a really um, educated decision on whether or not to use a dog because of A, B, or C. No, that that absolutely is one of the main the main differences is that you have to like the look of the dog, but it wouldn't be very good to have a good looking dog with um, too many faults. Right, yeah. too many health faults or right. or um, structural faults you, because you, you really can't always... guarantee too much because uh, to use the word guarantee is to step into hot water. What you can guarantee is that you've done the testing. 
And that's always when people call my office, they said, yes, but it was guaranteed. I said, people can only guarantee that they have tested this dog and these are the results. They can't guarantee that there's not something lurking um, in the in the background that they can't get a test for, that the test might not uh, show, uh, but that the breeder should always be there to help the owner if something is to come up. Well, a primary example is hips. You can uh, breed mm-hmm. OFA excellent to OFA excellent and still get um, a non as, as you remember, Merlin was OFA excellent to OFA excellent and dysplastic in one hip, and he was my heart dog. I wasn't getting rid of him, and his sister had OFA excellent hips. So go figure. There, it, as I said, it's a it's a ma- it's a balancing act, and it's a matter of ratios. Our litters are big. So in a litter of 10 or 12, you can have, have some miscreant that decided not to, not to pass their hips. That's right. But there is a big difference between clinically and physically right. uh, dysplastic. We know dogs um, that are x-rayed and see the defect, but never exhibit the issue. So anyway, every and breeder should try. dogs that pass, and they really have some issues. So it it's never dispositive, I think. It's it's the best you can do, but nothing's it ever is. dispositive. But you have to make sure you do the best you can do. So. Absolutely, and I think that's, that's the thing that really brings people to a certain um, breeder. It's a relationship. It's the testing they do. It's, it's really the transparency and mentorship, and, and it really makes people thrive in the breed, and that's what we want to do. So um, to, to that end, the AKC PAC really does work toward bringing people into and protecting people, people's ability to have purebred dogs. They do. They are busy busy, busy um, for the past decade, at least, and certainly the past five years, the restrictions on breeding, the, um, quote, interference uh, of your local community into what you can handle and what they think you should be doing. Um, The uh, government relations is extremely strong at AKC, and they're fighting for everybody, not a breed. They're fighting for dogs in general, including shelter dogs. I mean, when they say you'll have no more the next number of dogs, they don't care what pedigree it is. So they're busy protecting their rights. I always say, if you don't support the pack, then you're going to lose what you love. Right. Because uh, that is really uh, a necessary uh, part of our role. So let's talk a little bit about popularity. So using just our own breed, uh, you know, it's a big breed. It requires exercise. Uh, but, you know, a, a guy who jogs, a person who uh, runs, man or woman, uh, people who walk great, that's great for an iris setter. You don't need to have, uh, you know, 32 acres, but you do have to have enough space for them. So in the mid-1970s, if my memory serves me correct, we were in our heyday. Uh, in one year, we had over 50,000 iris setters born. It was the year after um, Big, Red. Big Red and Nixon had an Irish setter in the White House. Yep. So we suddenly became the dog du jour and we sat in fifth place of popularity for years. We are now in the low 80s. Yeah. So that means that uh, on an average, when I looked at some results, it, only uh, a thousand Irish setters were being born which, you know, sometimes breaks down to no more than 25 litters a year. And there's a reason for that. 
when we used to breed litter, somebody stayed home and raised the litter. Over the past decade, uh, with economy and what's been going on, two people go to work, two parents go to work, and there's nobody home to raise the litter. So uh, it it drove us down in the fact that uh, the size of our breed did, wasn't comfortable for everybody, but it seems to have been comfortable for the 50,000 in the 1970s. But also we as breeders are glad not to see that huge number. Uh, but during pandemic, we have 24% um, more bread, which means that I think in June at our national, the puppy sweepstakes is going to be enormous. That's right. So people have had the great opportunity to sit at home, make important decisions for their breeding program, and raise a litter of pups. And in my mind, that's only all good. So, well, I know you uh, and I have both had this experience when we're walking our dogs, having people walk by and say, I haven't seen one of those since the correct. 70s. It's, it's like you should tattoo it on your arm. <laughs> yeah, we are. We have been here since the 1970s. So yeah. uh, and uh, everybody said my father had one of those or my grandfather had one of those. And, and it, what's it, the next say, statement, Carolyn? The next statement is, but I can't find one. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and they always say to me, but it was so crazy. And I go, well, it's a very well-kept secret that Irish setters who are given gentle guidance at three and four and five and six months of age from their breeders at first and then from the owners with the guidance of the breeders actually become phenomenal companions. They definitely wonderful. Yeah. Nothing better. Except no. they push you off the couch. I mean, yes, they're, well, they're very rude. That in the bed. Uh, yeah. Although I must say that my husband has commented that our young dog, Junie, uh, now allows him in bed at night. So that's a plus because there's Junie a plus. Yeah. was looking at him as if I was here first and there is a couch out there you can sleep on. And uh, Jim did not really pick up on that very well. So let me ask you a question, Carolyn. In all your experiences in Irish Setters, what are one or two of the most important experiences you had? I'm thinking about Star and that litter from Bermuda, and I'm thinking about recent events with your master hunters. So tell us a little bit about those stories, because I love hearing about them, and I know my audience will. Well, um, probably the thing that I uh, think of most was the honor of judging our national, to see the work of everybody else to admire what they were doing, maybe even to steal ideas, you know. So doing that twice meant I got the broad spectrum of seeing everything everybody was doing. And in those days, our nationals were really quite big. Yeah. So now when I look back, I can tell you that my entrance into the field was um, a challenge that was uh, really a gauntlet thrown down to me when I drove up to a field trial, I'd been asked if I would come and judge versatility of their dogs. So uh, somebody came by the window. My mother was in the seat next to me. I don't know what they thought they were saying. But anyway, uh, the gauntlet was thrown down that my dog couldn't find a bird in a dish. <laughs> I said, well, that's a bit rude. I've never asked my dog to find a bird. Right. So uh, I uh, picked up that gauntlet while also thumbing my nose at this rude person and thought, all right, I better get into this. I um, was lucky to meet two people, Kevin and Jean Culver, who were immersed in field trial. And later um, I dragged them into hunting. So uh, we shared the. And into confirmation. 
and into confirmation. Yes. Yeah. We had to, we got them into confirmation, kicking and screaming. So I had tutors immediately of the nicest kind who bred beautiful dual came down from dual champions. So that's both field and the breed. And I think one of the most exciting things I did was add that to the family tree, the ability to hunt. um, It beats the ever loving, you know, what out of a dog's coat. So if you have a show dog, it's a scheduling act to take it, to finish it in the breed and decide that you can move to the field or to the hunt test. And when um, the field is grueling uh, training, you know, horse trailer and the um, F-150 to pull it all. I mean, you know, it's uh, we laughingly say whoever introduced us to field owes us $600,000 because that's about how much it's cost us with the equipment to get there. Yep. But with the advent of the AKC hunt test, where you arrive uh, with your hopefully pseudo trained dog uh, and you have on good boots and um, somebody will loan you a gun. So uh, that really started. Uh, uh, Yeah. Shoots blanks. Well, not at master level. Right. right. um, So it's been fun to do it myself and then to realize my dogs for reasons known only to them are really good at this and therefore to get a formal trainer for them. And I have a formal trainer. Um, I am lucky that out of a small number of master hunters that are champions, I've done three. Yeah. So uh, it's I'm very proud of the fact. And really, it's all to do with the trainer and the willingness of the dog. Right. And my temperament seemed to be willing to go with anybody. It's quite disloyal. Oh, look, <laughs> she has a quail in her pocket. Off I go. Yes, off so, I go. Yes. Uh, it, yeah. it, and it, your it, dog came behind my dog. Uh, exactly. So, my dog left trainer. me in, in the dust when he found that That's trainer. Right. He was yes. still who we love. Yeah. Uh, still who we love, yep. So. It really is interesting to see. And, and I have to lament with you that uh, during pandemic, there were no dog shows. So Carolyn and I decided together that we would um, send our dogs out to be master hunters. So Zachy went out and became a master hunter. And uh, Junie went out and became a master hunter. Zachy already was a champion um, or finished up at the, after he grew a few coat back. Junie is still growing his coat back. and. Uh, right. Uh, we'll we'll maybe start next year. But these dogs are so incredibly independently intelligent. I think more so than the dogs we owned. And I don't know how you feel, but tell me the dogs we owned before we knew about this wonderful sport of um, bringing them out into the field. I mean, we knew about it, but we didn't participate. Now that well, we're participating. I think they've always had the instinct. Absolutely. Uh, but we've never we either didn't have the interest or the time, or didn't have a trainer close enough to us. So there were a lot of things. But as I said, the advent of the hunt test where anybody can go, can can do it. So can I move along off Irish setters sure. for a minute? So when we talk about, you know, what it takes to be something, every breed has that standard of what they want to be. I mean, when I look at the Pekingese and I think of all the traits that you have to pack into that beautifully small package, the weighting of the front, the gorgeous face. And you think, well, somebody said to me, well, what do you think the purpose of that was? I said, well, those are companion breeds. I mean, they are, are bred, companion breeds, right? They are, they are companion breeds that are bred to, you know, sit on your lap. Every toy dog, however, has a perf- a purpose. Um, 
and the breeders are happy to tell you, but I admire the toy dogs just because of what they have to pack into those little bodies. And, um, you know, currently I'm in love with Pekingese. I mean, David Fitzpatrick better watch out. I'm going to steal one. So, uh, it's whenever somebody chooses what their breed is, I didn't choose mine. I was born the same month that a litter of puppies was born at my house. I mean, what were my parents thinking when they bred that bitch and knew I was coming? Yeah, well, probably they bred the bitch because they needed to and wanted to and you were on your way and that was it. Yeah, that was it. I don't know what they were. There was thinking. only one of you, so easy to care for you. <laughs> yes, there you go. And, you know, I. I've been accused of being all dog all the time. Someone rudely said that if I had kids, they'd bark. Yes. So um, I am all dogs all the time, but in all sorts of different areas, I don't ever want to live without one. Um, and for a lifetime so far, it's been Irish setters. But at some point I'm going to say um, I'm getting a bit old for, you know, 78 pounds. So maybe I'll get an English cocker or something like that. I, I'm sure I'll stay in the sporting group. But uh, they grow with you. And um, at two years of age, a light bulb goes on somewhere in their head and they suddenly become the perfect dog. So you just have to grit your teeth a little because the first words of the standard uh, talk about aristic, active um, gun dog. And everything up to the age of two is all about the active part. <laughs> and the standard does quote rollicking personality. I was Every dog I've ever owned has read that sentence. Yes. So. And, and taken it to the mat. To the mat. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit more, Carolyn, because breeding and having animals um, and all different kinds of breeds really make up the purebred dog society, so to speak. And the testing and things that people put into having their dogs come out and do what they do. And as you said, this little small package has all of this um, information within it to do what it was bred to do. The Chihuahua, the Manchester Terrier, the, you know, there are so many dogs. I, we, we know and love friends who have uh, both Wheaton Terriers and um, Norwich and Norfolk, and they all have a job. They all have a job. And of course, terriers are uh, vermin control. Yep. That's what they were born to, no matter what their size. Uh, the Airedale being, I think, the biggest of all terriers and certainly regal and beautiful, right down to the Norfolk and Norwich that were originally tossed from the saddle to the ground to uh, go after things. Look at your hounds, your dachshunds who go down holes and your oh, yeah. hounds who find people. Everybody has something to do. So the decision is always uh, what you want to focus on with what your dog does. There are many opportunities with all of these dogs. There's just under 200 registered AKC breeds. Uh, there were four brand new ones that came in last year. Brand new meaning they weren't new. They were very old and European, but they came into our country new. And the rules of being prepared uh, to expose your breed in America is several generations of tracking. You go in FSS, which is a foundation stock for you to develop your uh, lines and breeds in this country. And after some pretty rigorous um, sitting down to get it right, you can apply for your breed to become a member of the AKC. But uh, there are currently just under 200 breeds with four brand new ones last year. So and the, growing. 
The best thing about that is you can talk to breeders to know what the good aspects of a dog are. I mean, I own dachshunds and I never realized they dug to China uh, very uh, efficiently, I might add, where you can see their tails. Yeah. So you need to ask your breeder about, and that's the beauty of having a breeder. So we're going to wrap this up by starting where we began, because you have to ask your breeder um, and ask the rescue because they're going to do the best they can to tell you what this dog is going to be like. It's not just, you know, it's, it's, it's more of a um, a apple bobbing with a rescue dog because they don't really know what's behind it or what's happening. But with purebred dogs, we do know what's behind them. And we can warn you, if you want an Irish setter, you're going to have to take five mile walks a day or else find a field for them to run in or have a backyard they can run in back and forth. Or they could use the dining room table as Junie does. Uh, but you really need to know what that dog, its expectations um, with you are, not just your expectations for the dog, but the dog's expectations as it lives with you, because they are smart as whips. That's why they're companions now. They're not, you know, out in the back and and ignored because I think dogs these days have also developed the ability to be a companion on an extraordinary level. Not that they weren't in the 50s, 60s and 70s, but the way we've shifted our attention to them has actually, I think, changed the way they live with us as well. Uh, yeah, as I said, I think the culture in general is that your dog is your family. And uh, probably uh, that was never more evident than the past 18 months. Oh, absolutely. And I know, uh, you know, questions now before I go anywhere is, does the hotel take a dog? Uh, can I drive because I don't want to put him on a plane? Uh, so, you know, people probably didn't think about that. They thought about boarding, which I'm all for finding a great kennel, by the way, so that uh, when you need to get away, you know where you're going. And that kennel uh, gets to know everything about your dog, keeping your vaccines up. Oh, my goodness. You know, watch out for the vaccines that you give. Uh, mm-hmm. It is absolutely important to keep up to date. Um, and if you're going to board to make sure you have Bordetella and things like that. So it's all about preparation. When you're choosing a breed, do your homework. Not every breed, you can certainly get a dog, but not every breed is for everyone. Absolutely. And that includes rescue. Yep. Um, and and you know what? It, it Everyone is going to work with the dog they get as long as they can. And if it doesn't work out, it might be better to return the dog to the breeder or return the dog to the shelter if it's not working out. But that's not a failure. It's just, you know, sometimes we bite off more than we can chew. And, and I love that you brought up, you know, make sure that you know where your kennel is, make sure the hotels, that's sort of the map community issue. You make a plan, appoint caregivers, address the needs of the pet and publish it because it really is important. So I didn't get to talk to you, Carolyn, about Assisi. So everyone, Carolyn will be back because she is part of this phenomenal group called Assisi Animal Health, which has been doing phenomenal things in the animal health arena that I will tease you with. Carolyn, tell us like three sentences about Assisi and then we'll have you back to talk about Assisi. They're all about controlling pain and inflammation with uh, lower levels of drugs. It's... um opioid sparing and uh the dog doesn't have to ingest anything it's uh fda cleared human and has now received many awards in the animal health world
So So we're going to have you back really soon to do that one, because I have to say that my dog, Roxy, is so appreciative of her loop lounge uh, so that she can lay there and get a treatment and feel so much better afterwards. So until next time, this is Deborah Hamilton. Why do pets matter? Thank you so much for joining us, Carolyn. Thank you so much for giving us the 40 years of incredible expertise talking about purebred dogs, what they're bred to do, how you get involved with what they do and how to select the right pet for you. My pleasure. It was great fun. Thanks. Bye, everyone. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.